0: Hey everybody, welcome to the Derish Chai Experiment, the show where we learn to read the Bible with an eye towards the underlying themes of the text. The book of Leviticus, as we've discussed, is a handbook for how to worship Hashem. It contains within its pages the thing that a person should be concerned with when approaching the God of creation for any purpose. The first thing that Leviticus addresses is the attitudes that a person should have when approaching God. One thing that we must remember as we read this book through is that Leviticus was not written to a modern audience. It was written to an audience that had no question about the existence of gods. They had no problem with the idea of worship. A major part of their worship practices, regardless of where they were from, was sacrifice. The idea of giving things to the gods from what you have. And so when Hashem brings Israel out of Egypt and He desires to be in relationship with them, He teaches them how to approach Him specifically. And sacrifice is the tool that is used to accomplish this lesson. And Leviticus gets pretty detailed in the specifics of sacrifice. How to offer the sacrifice, who gets what part of the sacrifice, what state a person must be in in order to offer the sacrifice or to eat of the sacrifice. And hidden in each of these instructions, when they're all compiled together, is the attitude that the worshiper should give the sacrifice with. And in this we discover the attitudes of approach to the Father that are timeless. While sacrifice was for a specific time, the attitudes that we should have, as revealed by the sacrificial system, are enduring. It is these attitudes that we should continue to have today as we worship Hashem. The fear of Hashem giving tribute to our king or gifts to our intimate partner, thanksgiving and praise, fellowship and friendship, humility before perfection, and repentance from wrongdoing. These attitudes are primary for the people of Israel before Hashem. After the exploration of these attitudes of worship on the individual level, the book of Leviticus goes through a narrative portion where each of the sacrifices is then put into practice. We are treated to stories of fulfillment of the things that were commanded in the book of Exodus, alongside the offering of various sacrifices, both successful and unsuccessful. And after this interlude of sorts comes the second topic of the book, one that does not have any true practical applications today. But just as sacrifice, the second topic contains within it foundational ideas that any worshiper of God of Israel should recognize. Hashem is a God of life, and His presence is sacred. Certain things should never enter into His presence, and uncleanness is one of those things. But what is uncleanness? As we examine the various forms that uncleanness can take, we recognize that uncleanness is the product of mortality and death, and that's such a large part of our existence. And death is that great enemy of Hashem. It is the final enemy that must be defeated once and for all before God will resume His reign here on earth, according to 1 Corinthians 15. And it is death that is at the core of uncleanness, and it is this that fundamentally separates us from God. And as long as death remains in our flesh, there is a separation between God and man. But this only applies in practice when the presence of God is manifest in the physical. With our current situation under the blood of Yeshua, we have been cleansed of sin and death. We have begun to put off this flesh of death and to put on the renewed flesh of new creation. But this process too, it's not quite complete. For now we live in a now-not-yet reality where we have seen the beginning of the process of new creation. We've experienced the beginning of that process of new creation. But we have not yet seen the fulfillment of it. For now... Uncleanness, it simply teaches us of the need for a Savior who can redeem us from this flesh of death. And then in Leviticus 16, we reached the center of the book. All of the topics of Leviticus came together in this one chapter, and they were all put into practice in the ritual of the day of Yom Kippur. The sacrifice is a large part of the day, but there is an exception on this day. One animal is brought before Hashem and is not sacrificed and this animal bears the sins of the people out into the wilderness. The uncleanness of the people that had encroached on God's space is taken care of and cleaned away. Holiness is recognized, respected, and practiced, and the community celebrates and worships before God. Each of these ideas being the main themes of the book of Leviticus. And today, we begin the third topic, the topic of holiness. So let's turn to Leviticus 17 and 18 and read these chapters before we proceed any further. Leviticus 17 and 18. And Hashem spoke to Moshe, saying, Speak to Aaron, to his sons, and to all the children of Israel, and say to them, This is the word which Hashem has commanded, saying, Any man from the house of Israel who slays a bull or a lamb or a goat in the camp, or who slays it outside the camp, and does not bring it to the door of the tent of appointment to bring an offering to Hashem before the dwelling place of Hashem, blood guilt is reckoned to that man. He has shed blood, and that man shall be cut off from among his people, in order that the children of Israel bring their sacrifices which they sacrifice in the open field, and they shall bring them to Hashem at the door of the tent of appointment to the priest and sacrifice them as a sacrifice of peace offerings to Hashem. And the priest shall sprinkle the blood on the altar of Hashem at the door of the tent of appointment, and shall burn the fat for sweet fragrance to Hashem, and let them no longer sacrifice their sacrifices to demons after whom they hoard. This is a law forever for them throughout their generations. And say to them, Any man of the house of Israel, or of the strangers who sojourn among you, who offers an ascending offering or sacrifice, and does not bring it to the door of the tent of appointment, to do it to Hashem, that man shall be cut off from among his people. And any man of the house of Israel, or of the strangers who sojourn among you who eats any blood, I shall set my face against that being who eats blood, and shall cut him off from among his people. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your lives, for it is the blood that makes atonement for the life. Therefore I said to the children of Israel, No being among you eats blood, nor does any stranger who sojourns among you eat blood. And any man from the children of Israel or from the strangers who sojourn among you, who hunts and catches any beast or bird which is eaten, shall pour out its blood and cover it with dust. For it is the life of all flesh. Its blood is for its life. And I said to the children of Israel, Do not eat the blood of any flesh, for the life of all flesh is in its blood. Anyone eating of it is cut off. And any being who eats a carcass or what was torn by a beast Be he a native or a stranger, he shall wash his garments and bathe in water, and shall be unclean until evening. Then he shall be clean. And if it does not wash or bathe his body, then he shall bear his crookednesses. And Hashem spoke to Moshe, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, I am Hashem your Elohim. Do not do as they do in the land of Mitzrayim, where you dwelt, and do not do as they do in the land of Canaan, where I am bringing you, and do not walk in their laws. Do my judgments, guard my laws, and walk in them, I am Hashem your Elohim. And you shall guard my laws and my judgments, which a man does and lives by them, I am Hashem. No one is to approach anyone of his own flesh to uncover his nakedness, I am Hashem. The nakedness of your father, or the nakedness of your mother, you do not uncover, she is your mother, you do not uncover her nakedness. The nakedness of your father's wife, you do not uncover, it is your father's nakedness. The nakedness of your sister, the daughter of your father, or the daughter of your mother, whether born at home or elsewhere, their nakedness you do not uncover. The nakedness of your son's daughter, or your daughter's daughter, their nakedness you do not uncover, for theirs is your own nakedness. The nakedness of your father's wife's daughter, brought forth by your father. She is your sister, you do not uncover her nakedness. The nakedness of your father's sister, you do not uncover. She is your father's flesh. The nakedness of your mother's sister you do not uncover, for she is your mother's flesh. The nakedness of your father's brother you do not uncover. You do not approach his wife. She is your aunt. The nakedness of your daughter-in-law you do not uncover. She is your son's wife. You do not uncover her nakedness. The nakedness of your brother's wife you do not uncover. It is your brother's nakedness. The nakedness of a woman and her daughter you do not uncover, nor do you take her son's daughter or her daughter's daughter to uncover her nakedness. They are her relatives. It is wickedness. And do not take a woman as a rival to her sister to uncover her nakedness while the other is alive. And do not approach a woman to uncover her nakedness in her monthly separation of uncleanness. And do not have intercourse with the wife of your neighbor to defile yourself with her. And do not give any of your offspring to pass through to Moloch, And do not profane the name of your Elohim. I am Hashem and do not lie with a male as with a woman, it is an abomination, and do not have intercourse with any beast to defile yourself with it, and a woman does not stand before a beast to mate with it, it is a perversion. Do not defile yourselves with all these, for by all these the nations are defiled which I am driving out before you. Thus the land became defiled, therefore I punished it for its crookedness, and the land vomited out its inhabitants. But you... You shall guard my laws and my judgments, and not do any of these abominations, the native nor stranger who sojourns among you, because the men of the land who were before you have done all these abominations, and thus the land became defiled. So let not the land vomit you out for defiling it, as it vomited out the nations that were before you. For whoever does any of these abominations, those beings who do them shall be cut off from among their people." and you shall guard my charge so as not to do any of these abominable laws which were before you, so as not to defile yourselves by them. I am Hashem, your Elohim. Just before we read, I made a claim that might seem a bit out of place after reading. I stated that these chapters are the opening of the portion of Leviticus that has holiness as its main theme. Now the reason that this might seem off-base is that the word holy in any variation does not appear in these chapters. In fact, the word holy doesn't appear until chapter 19, the next chapter. So why do I make this claim? Well, if we were to read the entirety of chapter 17 and 18, we discover that thematically, there should not be a hard break between these two chapters. Both chapters contain prohibitions for the people of Israel, things that they should not do as part of the community of Israel. And then if we turn to Leviticus 18, verse 24 through 30, we read the following. Do not defile yourselves with all these, for by all these the nations are defiled, which I am driving out before you. Thus the land became defiled. Therefore I punished it for its crookedness, and the land vomited out its inhabitants. But you... You shall guard my laws and my judgments, and not do any of these abominations, the native nor the stranger who sojourns among you, because the men of the land who were before you have done all these abominations, and thus the land became defiled. So do not let the land vomit you out for defiling it as it vomited out the nations that were before you. For whoever does any of these abominations, those beings who do them shall be cut off from among their people. And you shall guard my charge so as not to do any of these abominable laws which were done before you, so as not to defile yourselves by them. I am Hashem, your Elohim. These verses serve as a wrap-up for what comes before. And in this passage, we discover that the word defile is repeated six times in these six verses. Now, when we understand the scales that are being revealed in these texts, we find that the word defile is the bottom of the scale of holiness. Rather than these verses being attached only to sexual purity prohibitions of chapter 18, we can understand that this closing is connected to every prohibition that had been given since chapter 16. And with this view, we can discover that the topic of holiness is being entered into, beginning with prohibitions against the thing that would make a person defiled before God. One other thing that leads me to this conclusion is that I believe that we catch a glimpse of this in the book of Acts, as the early church began to hash out the requirements for being a member of the community of believers in Yeshua. In Acts chapter 15, we read of two parties of believers who come into conflict. On one side, we read of the circumcision party that was declaring that a person not only had to believe in Yeshua, but also had to take on the circumcision before they were saved. Now, we need to understand that these men were not declaring that the act of circumcision had to be accomplished, but rather that circumcision was a linguistic placeholder for the taking on of Jewish identity. Their stance was essentially that a person had to become a proselyte or a convert to Judaism in order to be saved by the Jewish Messiah. On the other side of this argument were Paul and Barnabas, who had begun a mission to the Gentile world to invite them into the family of Abraham based on faith. And so a delegation was sent to Jerusalem to have the council determine what the minimum requirements were for a person to enter into the Christian community from the nations, and in acts fifteen nineteen through twenty one we read the decision of the council, therefore, I judge that we should not trouble those from among the nations who are turning to God, but that we write to them to abstain from the defilement of idols and from whoring and from what is strangled, and from blood, for from ancient generations, Moses has in every city those proclaiming him being read in the congregations every Sabbath. There were four limitations that were placed on new believers under a basic premise. One, abstain from the defilement of idols. Two, abstain from sexual immorality. Three, abstain from what is strangled. Now, we can understand this to be speaking of eating meat with the blood still in it. This was an extremely popular practice in the first century. Kill an animal by strangulation, and then allow the blood to remain in the animal for a day or two to ripen the meat. And then it would be eaten several days later as a delicacy. And four, abstain from blood. Now this could be an admonition against murder or the drinking of blood or any other number of situations that would involve contact with blood. But these four instructions were given under the premise that the person would then continue to learn about God and how to worship and obey him by hearing Moses read in the synagogue on the Sabbath. Now, if we examine these four prohibitions that were laid out for the early church, where do we think that the Jerusalem Council arrived at these four items? I submit that perhaps they knew their scripture better than we do. I also submit that the council arrived at this conclusion not through some mystical revelation from the Holy Spirit, but rather through a recognition of the scriptures that they already knew that was guided by the Holy Spirit. And I believe that the language that they used in their decision alludes to this. They were to abstain from the defilements of. They recognize in the choice of their language these things bring about defilement the very things that are covered in these chapters of defilement. Each of these four prohibitions is found in these two chapters of Leviticus. I believe that the Jerusalem Council recognized that the prohibitions found here from Leviticus 17-18 are the way to avoid defilement in order to draw close to God. Avoiding these abominations, as they're called in these chapters, is the beginning of the process for an ancient person to draw near. And so, as we should do any time that we recognize that the New Testament is referencing a text from the Hebrew Scriptures, we should really dig into the text to discover the context of these commands. And hey, what do you know? That's what we're doing today. So, returning back to Leviticus 17, let's dig in. So, the chapter begins with an admonition. If there is an animal that can be sacrificed to Hashem, then it cannot simply be killed wherever you want for food. It must be brought to the tabernacle, and it must be offered as a peace offering. Now, we'll find later that this command is rescinded in the book of Deuteronomy. Israel as they are currently in the story, they're in the context of the giving of this command where everyone is within a relatively easy distance from the tabernacle. When they get in the land and they're all spread out, however, this command no longer makes any sense, and so it is lifted. And we'll get to that in the book of Deuteronomy. But while in the wilderness, this command stands. Do not kill your food just anywhere. Bring it to the tabernacle as an offering. So the question arises, what's the purpose of such a prohibition? And we find the purpose in verse 7. Let them no longer slaughter their sacrifices to demons after whom they hoard. This is a law forever throughout their generation. There was apparently an issue in Israel of the people continuing to sacrifice to their own gods in their own ways. You see, henotheism was all the rage in the ancient Near East, especially in Israel from the time of Exodus until the time of the Babylonian exile. What is henotheism? Henotheism is the belief in the supremacy of a single god, in this case Hashem, without denying the existence of other gods and continuing to worship them as well. The first command could be understood by those who are stiff-necked to mean, don't have other gods that are greater than me, rather than don't have any other gods. And with this interpretation of the command, henotheism becomes acceptable. Now, we know that Israel practiced henotheism throughout the book of Judges, Samuel, and Kings. From the death of Joshua until the exile to Babylon, Israel was steeped in henotheism. Even David had a household idol in his home. And this is the issue that Hashem is addressing here. Don't sacrifice to those other gods. In fact, if it is a sacrificed animal, bring it and sacrifice it to Hashem. Do not sacrifice to the se'arim, after whom Israel has hoard in the past. Now, this command is very pointed prohibition from worshiping other gods. And as we examine the prohibitions from Acts fifteen, we discovered that this is the very first of the prohibitions that they instituted as the baseline for new Christians. Do not defile yourself with idols, idolatry. Even henotheism with Hashem at the top, as practiced in the ancient world, is to be avoided. Practicing such things brings defilement, and it separates you from the holiness of God. Doing this thing while in the wilderness, killing an animal for food without bringing it to the tabernacle, would have led to the exile of the offender. They would have been cast out into the wilderness themselves as a result. Now, in verse 10, we read something new, something that is perhaps the second most recognized passage in the book of Leviticus behind, love your neighbor as yourself. No one in Israel, whether a native or a ger, is to drink any blood. Now, to many of us, this is a disgusting practice, and we would never think of doing any such thing. But in the ancient world, it was thought that if you drank the blood of an animal, that you then took on the qualities of the animal, the spirit of the animal. And scripture does nothing to disabuse anyone of this idea. In fact, scripture is very clear that this is, in fact, the case. Now, to see this, we have to disabuse everyone of the mistranslation that occurs in this verse. Leviticus 17.11, For the life is in the flesh of the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your lives, for the blood that makes atonement for the life. Likewise in verse 14, For it is the life of all flesh, its blood is for its life. And I said to the children of Israel, Do not eat the blood of any flesh, for the life of all flesh is in its blood, anyone eating it is cut off. Throughout both of these verses, we read the idea that the life is in the blood. And that is a poor translation. The Hebrew says that the nefesh is in the blood, not the chai. Now, in many translations, the word nefesh is translated as soul. But as I brought up last week, the word nefesh most concretely means throat or neck. Here are a few examples where we find that to be the case. Isaiah 5 14 Therefore Sheol has made itself wide and opened its mouth without law. That word translated as itself is Nefesh. Therefore Sheol has made its Nefesh wide and opened its mouth without law. Nefesh is used in contrast to the mouth as a place that Sheol is opening to receive the dead. Now how about Proverbs 6 verse 30? They do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy his, in my translation it says appetite, but the word is nefesh, when he is starving. Men don't despise a thief if he steals to satisfy his nefesh when he's hungry. Exodus 31.17 Between me and the children of Israel, it is a sign forever. For in six days Hashem made the heavens and the earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was uh, refreshed? Well... Not quite. God rested and was refreshed, but the word there is nafash, which is the root of nafesh. But the literal meaning of the word is to take a breath. And where do you breathe from? Your throat. Or how about Psalm 69, 1 through 2, where it says, Save me, O God, for waters have come up to my nafesh neck in most translations. I have sunk deep in the mud, and there is no place to stand. I have come into deep waters, and the floods overflow me. The waters have come up to my nefesh. So while we can see from these verses that the concrete meaning of the word nefesh is neck, we can also see from Leviticus 17 that this is not the only meaning possible for this word. The neck of the flesh is in the blood. You see, it just doesn't work. And this reveals to us the concept of range of meaning when it comes to the Hebrew language. A word or a root will have a concrete meaning, something tangible or visible. But then through extrapolation, it will take on other intangible ideas that don't have a concrete counterpart. In the case of nefesh, we find that this word is derived from Nefash, as I stated earlier, to take a breath. And from this, it takes on a huge range of meaning. Now, with Hebrew, these meanings are not interchangeable. For example, even though nefesh is used for the word neck, it is also used for the word soul. We cannot simply swap out these words at will. So the range of meaning that nefesh takes on is very wide, but it is always connected to the root idea. The word can mean appetite or desire. It can mean any beast that breathes. It can refer to the dead body of an animal that previously breathed. It is translated as life more times than just this one passage. But most commonly, the word is translated as soul. Now, unfortunately, 400 years of disconnect has allowed this word to be hijacked to no longer mean what it used to mean. In the 1600s, when the King James Version was translated, the English word soul was used to mean the entirety of a person. We still use this word in this way. There were 100 souls on the plane, or 30 souls perished when the boat sank. And this is how we should understand this word when we read it in our English Bibles. We should not read or understand when we read the word soul that there's some sort of ghost in the machine idea, a life force or mystical intangible part of a person. That's a Greek idea that's nowhere to be found in the Bible. And frankly, this is how we usually understand this passage. The life force of the flesh is in the blood. I mean, this makes sense to us. And so this is the meaning that we then put back into the text. But that's not what's meant by this text. Rather, there's a very deep truth being revealed here. The being, the entirety of the being, is in the blood. Everything, DNA, genetics, disease, our current emotional state even, can be found in the blood, especially if there's fear involved in death. I believe the Bible to be... Commenting on this very real truth that was recognized by so many other cultures. You can take on aspects of an animal by drinking their blood. Now this was a super popular belief in the ancient world, and this passage would lead us to understand this is a truth. But what is also truth is that doing this, drinking the blood of an animal to take on their Aspects they're cast—that's an offense to God. We were created as humans; we we're to rule over the beasts, but we're not ruling over the beasts when we drink their blood in order to take on beastly aspects. We're attempting to become a beast in that case. And all through Scripture, this is the dichotomy that man is thrust into: we can choose to be a man, or we can allow the beast to control us. We can become more man or we can descend into our beast nature. And the purpose for drinking blood in many ancient cultures was in order to take on the aspects of a beast. To enhance our beast nature. To give it fuel. And doing this is a denial of who we are. Humanity is not just another beast. We are God's image. We have flesh in the same way that beasts do, but we have so much more. We are so much more. And as we continue, this becomes a big deal. Even if you cannot bring the animal to the tent of meaning for sacrifice because the animal is clean, but the animal is not a sacrificial animal, such as a deer, an ibex, or even a giraffe, then the blood of the animal is to be poured out on the ground and then covered with dirt. And anyone who eats of an animal that was not killed for the purposes of food, well, if you eat of that, you're unclean. They've touched the carcass of this animal as described in Leviticus 11 and have become unclean. The presence of uncleanness at this point in the text is a pointer to something rather cool that we're going to return to momentarily. In chapter 18, we're then treated to a lengthy discussion on sexual immorality. And this chapter opens with an admonition that we should all take to heart. Do not do as they did in Egypt, where you came from, and do not do as they do in Canaan, where you're going to. The things that you are doing, sacrificing to demons, drinking blood, engaging in deviant sexual behavior, don't do these things. You do my things, my laws, my judgments, not theirs. I am Hashem, your God. Their gods are not your gods. And if you do my things, then you shall live by them. Now this is a verse that is repeated by Paul in the midst of the book of Galatians. Galatians 3:11 through 12 it says that no one is declared right by the Torah before God is clear. For the righteous shall live by faith. And the Torah is not of faith, but the man who does them shall live by them. Now, this snippet contains passages from two places in the Hebrew Scriptures. The Torah never declared anyone right. Justification was never found in the Torah or anywhere else in the Tanakh. Habakkuk 2.4, see he who whose being is not upright in him is puffed up, but the righteous one lives by his faith, his steadfastness. The righteous lives by his emunah. Then in verse 12 of Galatians 3, we read this, The Torah is not of faith, but, and then it continues to quote Leviticus 18. The Torah is not of faith, that but, though, when viewed in the right light, leads to an interpretation that while the Torah is not of faith and never led to salvation, it doesn't invalidate the Torah. So let's read this verse with that in mind. The Torah is not a faith, but that does not change the fact that the Torah fosters life in those who practice it. And this is something that we discover about the Torah in the Torah. Its purpose was never salvation. Its purpose was simply to give us guidelines by which to discern good from evil, blessing from curse, and life from death. Deuteronomy 30.19 I have called the heavens and the earth as witness against you. I have set before you life and death, the blessing and the curse. Therefore you shall choose life so that you live, both you and your seed. This is the purpose of the Torah, and this purpose has not changed. Those who do the Torah will find life through the Torah. But never think that doing the Torah will save you. The Torah does not make you right with God. The blood of the Lamb saves you. It always has. It always will. And then the remainder of this chapter contains prohibitions of sexual immorality, and then finishes with the guideline that what has preceded are the instructions to avoid defilement. So I want to return for a moment to something that I opened with that touches on the presence of the topic of uncleanness in this Parsha. Throughout these two chapters, we read nothing of holiness, other than that last few verses about avoiding defilement. Holiness is not mentioned at all. But in chapter 17, verse 15, we do read of another scale of clean and unclean. Now, why would these words be found in this passage? But the main topic not addressed at all by name. Well, if we turn back to chapter 11, at the beginning of the topic of uncleanness, we discovered something very fascinating when we compare it to this passage. What was the first part of the topic of uncleanness? Dietary instructions. And what is the first part of this section on holiness? Well, again, it's dietary instructions. How to prepare animals that are food to be eaten. Just after these dietary instructions, what do we have? Instructions on how to handle corpses of animals that are not food. We see that in both places. And what do we encounter just after the dietary instructions in this section on holiness? Instructions for what to do with the corpse of a clean animal that is food. And at the end of chapter 11, we read something rather fascinating when seen through the lens of a literary pattern. Leviticus eleven forty-three 43-45 Do not make yourselves abominable with any swarming creatures, the ones swarming, and do not make yourselves unclean with them, lest you be defiled by them. For I am Hashem your God, and you shall set yourselves apart, and you shall be holy, for I am holy." And do not defile yourselves with any swarming creatures, the one creeping on the earth, for I am Hashem, who is bringing you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God, and you shall be holy, for I am holy. There, in the midst of the topic of uncleanness, we encounter an overlap with holiness that's found in the midst of those chapters. And here in chapter 17, we see the same thing. In the midst of the topic of holiness, as told through the aspect of avoidance of defilement, we encounter an area of overlap with the topic of uncleanness. Pretty cool, right? But wait, there's more. If we continue in this vein, in chapter 12, we find a discussion of uncleanness in the process of childbirth, the product of a proper sexual union. And here in Leviticus 18, we encounter a listing of all of the forbidden sexual unions. And this continues on in chapter 19, corresponding to the chapters on Zaharot, and chapter 20, corresponding to chapter 15 on Nida. These topics in the order that they're told in, it's not random. They're purposeful. And these patterns can help us to see just what it is that connects these ideas of clean and holy. Because both sections cover the same topics in the same order. And with this, we see the different ways that holiness and uncleanness are present in various ways in the world, which can then help us to better understand these topics as a whole. And when we can understand these topics on a foundational levels, the commands become more than simply those rote instructions to be checked off. They become the foundation and the base guidelines for something much more. They provide a backbone that allows us to understand the Torah as Yeshua understood it, not addressing physical actions so much as addressing heart issues that then lead to physical actions. One last thing I want to discuss before we close. Chapter 17 contains an admonition against the drinking of blood. We are not to drink blood because the entirety of the being is in the blood, right? Right? But then in the Gospels, we read of Yeshua saying something a little different in his final meal. Matthew 26, 27-28 And taking the cup and giving thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood, that of the renewed covenant, which is shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Yeshua takes the cup of wine and says that it is his blood. And then he commands that we drink of this cup. But what about the prohibition of blood? Wouldn't this be anathema to the community that worships Hashem? Or is it simply a symbol that uses the prevailing ideas of the day to make a greater point to its audience? First of all, Yeshua did not command that anyone actually drink blood. If he had, then we would have grounds for calling him a false prophet. Rather, he instituted a memorial practice that teaches us about our own calling in light of the new covenant that's contained in this blood. For if the blood of an animal allows a person to take on aspects of that animal and become more beastly, then what would be the result if we were to drink the blood of Yeshua? The result would then be that we would take on aspects of our Savior. We would, rather than descending into our beastly nature through the drinking of animal blood, be raised up, and take on a holy, new creation nature through the drinking of his blood. The nefesh is in the blood, after all, the entirety of the person. And if we drink the blood of Yeshua as part of a memorial ceremony, then we are indicating in some way that we desire to incorporate his nature into ourselves. Paul seems to hint at these ideas as well in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, 26-31. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the death of the master until he comes, so that whoever should eat this bread or drink of this cup of the master unworthily shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the master. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of this bread and drink of that cup, For the one who is eating and drinking unworthily eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the body of the Master. Because of this, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. For if we were to examine ourselves, we would not be judged. Those who attempt to take on the nature of Yeshua who have not cleansed themselves become guilty of the blood of Yeshua. The same way that a person who comes before Hashem without washing with water becomes guilty of a transgression against Hashem. Those who attempt to drink the blood of the Messiah, to take on His nature, but who have not made an attempt to reach that nature themselves through personal judgment end up worse off than before. The nature of Yeshua in a body of corruption will result in further corruption. We have only to look to Nadav and Avihu for an example of this. They attempted to draw too close to holiness without the proper preparation, and they paid for it in their flesh. Is this what Paul is speaking of here? Attempting to incorporate Yeshua into our flesh, but doing so without passing through self-judgment, thus leading to greater judgment. In the end, the lesson of this passage in 1 Corinthians, the lesson of Acts 15, the lesson of Leviticus 17 and 18, is that in order to worship a holy God, and in order to live with the holiness that is granted to the people of God, we must avoid defilement. These chapters of Leviticus 17 and 18, they are the chapters that the Jerusalem Council turned to for their baseline of entry into the greater Messianic community. Before coming into the community, We must leave behind all defilement. For entry into the kingdom of God bestows holiness upon a person. A lesson that we're going to learn next week. Holiness is not something that you do. Holy is something that you are. But as a person who's been granted holiness because of your relationship with a holy God, there are things that can no longer be done. Doing these things will result in corrupting the holiness that God has bestowed on you. And corruption in this way will result in further corruption of your body. As people of holiness, our first duty is to avoid defilement. Our second duty, which we're going to look at next week, is to learn to act out holiness. And that can only properly be done when we understand our God and who He is. And with a basic understanding of who God is, it will help us as we Deresh as we seek life. Shalom. Thank you for tuning in to Deresh Chai. If this content has blessed you and you would like more, please consider subscribing, liking, commenting, and sharing with others. To find out more about what we do and to support this ministry, head over to seeklifesc.com. That's seeklifesc.com. We'll see you again next time as we De'er Shchai, as we seek life. Shalom.